This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Today, we're back with another podcast. Uh, This is Lynn and Jen. And today, we're very fortunate to have uh, Dr. Sam Judice with us. He's a long-term colleague and member of the Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and fellow faculty member here at UCSF. Today, we're going to be talking uh, about sexual identity and particularly gay sexual identity. And uh, we're going to start, I think, uh, after we introduce Jen a bit, uh, we're going to start talking with Sam about some of the history of the uh, really the sexual identity construction in America and beginning back at World War II, I think. Yeah, mm. so I'm here as well, and I'm so excited to invite you here, Sam. I think you have a lot to share with our listener about, you know, how all of this plays into history. You shared a lot about history just as we were talking, and I find it so fascinating because it's an aspect of sexuality that isn't often discussed, and yet it has such a huge role. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm really honored to be here, and um, I love sharing, you know, uh, my thoughts and thinking with both of you. uh, yeah. So one of the things that we were, we were talking about as we were thinking about this podcast is, um, how we got to the point we're at today. It just didn't sort of randomly happen. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, a, a lot of things happened, um, going back to World War II. One is that, you know, World War II allowed it a lot of movement of people around the world and around the country who were normally kind of fixed in one location. And that, that allowed a lot of, um, uh, sharing of ideas. And, and one of the things of World War II that I actually learned from my parents, both of who were involved with, with World War II, you know, my father in the military and my mother, you know, working for the war effort was that, you know, uh, the the uh, the aggression and the dis- uh, uh, destabilizing effect of war really horrified that whole generation, and um, the loss, the tragedy, the death, the destruction, yeah. uh, the disruption of lives, um, uh, really really affected that generation. The one thing I got from my parents and from my aunts and uncles who were also equally involved yeah. was that. They really felt the need to have cooperation and a stable world. That without peace, creativity and prosperity just couldn't happen. Because, you know, isolation, aggression, hatred led to quite a a large amount of destabilization that really you know, devastated the world and really adversely affected a lot of people. So that was the one thing that I really learned from them. And I think, I think that whole generation, uh, you know, after World War II was about cooperation, the UN, 
globalization, working together, trying to work with people who had different ideas, different views, you know, having tolerance, opening up borders. And I think with the death of that generation, both my parents, all my aunts and uncles have, have you know, since, since died. And I think with the death of that generation, there's been a real loss of that perspective to kind of help give a certain kind of restraint to aggressive, hateful, combative impulses, because they knew where they would lead. And I think that kind of restraint was really important when there was a lot of social tension that I think the post-war uh, period brought um, in, in the sense of, you know, uh, the Vietnam War, I think, uh, kind of highlighted social tensions. Those who were looking for a certain way of interacting, uh, uh, civil rights, women's rights, what's the impact of society and beliefs of society on people, allowing more kind of flexibility and ideas rather than holding to very rigid doctrines of what people should and shouldn't do. When we were talking earlier, Sam, we talked about um, the impact of this on sexual identity and how different generations were affected differently. You know, the the post-war generation really kind of shut down, cooperated, worked together. And then we moved into the 60s. It was really a period of opening and questioning sexual identity. How do you see that changing or shifting over the different generations? Because I agree with you about that post-World War, World War II generation. You know, I think it has a pendulum effect. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, with some generations or some, some decades, there is a real sort of uh, view of being more fluid, being more open, uh, you know, being more creative, trying different things. And then I, I think people get frightened about where that is going to lead. And, you know, where what, what would happen if people's sexuality is fluid? What happens if gender is fluid? What happens if society is more fluid and more open? I think as movements start happening that way, I think there is a backlash as people get frightened about where is that going to lead? Well, they know where they are may not be, uh, you know, good and have shortcomings. They're afraid of where, where things are going to go. And then there become backlashes. And the pendulum goes back and forth between, I think, having hyper-masculine roles, hyper-feminine roles, having real structured roles and limitations as to what people can and can't do. Um, And then there are other periods where I think, you know, things become more fluid and open and people can can make their own choices and explore things. So I, I think there is this pendulum back and forth. I think today, I know we're supposed to be kind of timeless, but I think right now there is... Um, a real backlash towards kind of, I think, fluidity that has been happening with the idea of, of sexuality is, is much more of a spectrum and much more fluid than people had previously uh, believed. Yeah. So, I, oh, go ahead, Jen. Yeah. So if I hear you correctly, mm-hmm. what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, there is this pendulum, and I definitely agree with that. In terms of, would you say that it's more during times of peace or peacefulness the cooperation kind of aspect where people are then more fluid. So there's kind of a tie-in with that. You know, during times of war, you almost don't have time to consider some of these other things and that the rigidity kind of provides stability and something to hold on to. 
I, I do agree with that. Um, I, I think, you know, um, you know, during times of war, people become paralyzed. They become fearful. They clamp down more. Uh, anybody who has a different idea is thought to be the enemy. Yeah. And um, I think during time, you know, the opposite of war is not peace. It's right. really creativity. Mm-hmm. And during periods of creativity, you know, it expands in all sorts of ways. Generation of wealth, technology, mm-hmm. medicine, um, intellectual growth, social growth. And I think there is a certain kind of um, attitude that promotes that, just as I think there's a certain kind of attitude that promotes kind of hatred, aggression, fighting war, yeah, restrictiveness. So you see us moving in that direction. I I unfortunately do. I, I think that I think there is now a, a swing of the pendulum of of, of real fear, paralysis, mm-hmm. aggression, possibly you know leading to nationalism, which you know historically has always led to wars and totalitarianism. And you would expect with that there be a constriction on sexuality. You know that uh, the governments might be constricting that, not focusing on it, not having open laws about it. There might be an impact on that. If, if I hear you correctly, sure. You're, you know, it's a whole attitude. You're either with us or against us. There is no the black and white. Black and white. There's there's no room for anything else. More complicated, sophisticated thinking. During this period of creativity, we've seen maybe 30 or 40 years, the world has really had a time to look at sexual identity differently. And it's really, uh, I think, been led by, in many ways, by uh, youth, and particularly gay youth, trans youth, youth really pushing the envelope of sexual identity. How have you seen sexual identity become more fluid in the last, say, 30, 40 years? You know, I, I think it depends on, on the generation. I, I think depending, and it depends on what part of the country you're in, too. Yeah. Um, as to what allows it. Um, you know, here in San Francisco, I think we find out how fluid it is that people get to try on different roles. And mm-hmm. rather than reacting to that, I think people let them play with it. And then, you know, I, I have to say I've had patients that seem like they're transgender going, and, and then they sort of kind of settle into who they feel they are. And it was as if they were, you know, exploring things, trying to figure out what fits and how they want to organize themselves and what compromises make sense to them to make. All sexuality is a compromise of some <laughs> sort. And so um, I, I think, you know, there have been times where even when people were, were gay, they felt the need to be hyper-masculine to somehow justify or feel good about who they were. And then there were, you know, hyper-feminine roles. And, and, and so I think there's been a, a kind of a back and forth. Can you say more about why you see sexuality as a compromise? I agree with you, but I think uh, for the listener out there who might be thinking about constructing their identity, might be a parent, seeing sexuality as a compromise might be a new or different idea. Well, whenever you make a choice, it means you give something up. People make choices, but there is a give and take in the choice. And you have to decide, you know, sort of where where you want to be on the give and take. Yeah. I find that so interesting, too, in the context of, you know, I work with a lot of teens, as I've talked about before, and I see a lot more teens in the between, like, 13 to 18 right now as wanting to identify as bisexual or pansexual and and 
sometimes in working with them, it doesn't sound like they're particularly interested in both sexes, but they want to kind of keep their options open. And I find that very interesting, at least in this general Bay Area where, you know, I didn't even really know what pansexual was until I worked <laughs> with a client who identified that way. But really this idea that, like, I don't want to shut anything out right now. I want to be able to explore everything. And then kind of as you're talking about in time, slowly saying, like, okay, well, I don't think I'm really that interested in this, but at least it was something that I could explore. Yeah, like, one of the things, let's think about kind of being in a relationship with somebody. Yeah. You know, um, there's, a, there's a lot, if you read a lot of their early gay literature, they talk about kind of having open relationships. But there's a cost in that, too. Sure, you can kind of follow your kind of, you know, desire and be with people. Right. But then there's also a cost when you're in a relationship that somebody can feel left out. Somebody could want to be with you and you're not there. There, there, there is a trade-off. It's not like, you know, right. uh, without its, its compromises. And just as being in a monogamous relationship, you give up something different, but then you have, you have, you have something different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, somebody there, um, somebody you're with, you don't feel left out. Um, somebody you're working with and a certain kind of understanding. You're bringing up, Sam, I, I see a lot of gay couples, and they're now families with children. And uh, many of those couples, the members, when they were younger, experimented, wanted to have an open relationship. But it's closing off as the children enter the family and the choices are made. And there's often struggle around that. And I think it's harder, actually, for many gay individuals because they have more the openness you're describing, Jen. And then they've got to move into a different world really, and make different compromises, uh, you know, with the family and around their own sexuality. And that's not so easy. Uh, I, I think it's true, you know, and, and there isn't really, you know, um, I think the model of that is sort of evolving. Because I think at one time, if you were gay, you sort of felt you had to be for open relationships. And that, that was just the way it was. But I think people have begun to have more sophisticated thinking about that. And, you know, there's no right or wrong way. It's just what's, what works or is helpful for a particular person, what sort of lines up more with what they want versus, you know, having to conform to uh, some sort of um, template that really has no original. It's just something you're mm-hmm. following, but there is no original. Yeah, I mean, I'm nodding my head along as you're saying that because I I so much see that too. And I think it's been one of the great things about talking about history, this openness, this creativity, is that I feel more couples have been able to choose in a personal way kind of how they want to be in a relationship rather than ascribing to specific roles. I know talking to some of the older gay men that I'm friends with, I think they talked about how originally there was no template, but because of that, they felt they would just kind of follow more of the normative. One of them is more feminine, one of them is more masculine, and they're just going to kind of hang on to those identities. And I see more kind of that there can be the back and forth and that it's really something that is, we've talked about the word co-constructed, you know, something where you're both talking about how do I want to be, what do you want from me, and that it's this ongoing dialogue. That's right, and and part of the co-construction is trying different things on and seeing what works and under what circumstances. 
I also think that has a lot to offer to hetero couples, too, because that idea that you take on a strict gender role is lessened when you're really exposed to more of that open construction. So I think San Francisco has been an interesting environment to observe people really modifying their relationships, you know, based on, I think, some of the innovative roles that gay individuals have taken on in their intimate relationships had a huge impact. I think here. And if you think about that, once again, this brings us back to World War II, right. where people were allowed to take on different roles. Yeah. You went to Rosie the River. <laughs> Out of necessity. Know? Out yeah. of necessity. My mother worked in a factory where they made engines for airplanes. and So she, she was the Rosie. She was, the Rosie. She yeah. was quite feminine, but the, I was always found it hard to believe that she was drilling <laughs> holes in engines. Yeah. And, um, you know, while my father, you know, was off... In the army. Yeah. So uh, I, I think there was, a, there. I think it gave, it allowed people to think that women could work. They didn't have to be in the home. There, mm-hmm. there could be a place, although there was a struggle with that, mm-hmm. uh, with that new idea. And I think also, you know, San Francisco became a gay place after World War II because I think a lot of people who were fixed in places were allowed to move around and find different places that they could be where people shared their ideas mm-hmm. and that they weren't alone. And, you know, San Francisco actually became a place be- after World War II because of all the, all the military that had been here and uh, decided to settle here. One part of our program, we target a bit toward parents, too. And parents, I think, struggle with this whole concept of sexual identity, no matter what generation they're part of. And I think part of it is for your own exploration as a person, you can see the broader strokes with sexual identity. But when it comes to kids, restrictions you know, preconceived ideas, a lot of other things enter the picture. You work a lot with uh, gay youth who are coming out and the whole process of disclosure. Can you say something about parents and maybe what might be most helpful for the kids? I think one of the things when um, parents have a child that their body does not align up line with who they are. So let's say you have a boy that, you know, thinks he's a girl, that wants to be a girl, doesn't want to have his penis. And uh, we're talking about something that is kind of persistent over time. I think uh, a lot of times the parents will, will, will not know what to do. And I think one of the work, one of the first steps, um, I, I think in working with the child, and there's a lot of kind of writing about this now, is that you have to have, you have to work with the child, first of all, to help them realize then when they look down at their body, it's not the body they want. Um, they might, you know, and I think you have to work with them. For them to think they have a different body than the, what they have, I think, is, is where the work is. First of all, to let them realize it isn't the body that they want. And then that can lead to the next steps, whatever that are. But there's, you know, I think it's really important that parents realize that some children really don't have the body they want. And there's, you know, it used to be thought that it was just a social construct and, and, you know, it was the parents' fault. It's not the parents' fault. (laughs) That's important to say. That's important to highlight. It's not the parents' fault. There, there's some research now that, that shows that, that the sense of one's sort of, um, uh, body and, you know, uh, your sex is either you're male or female. You either, you know, have certain body anatomy or you don't, you know, you have, and, um, so that is, so sex is 
strictly biologically determined. XX, XY. Yeah, I mean, it gets a little more complicated with the intersex, but absolutely, like, for the most part, it is. So, of course, we're we're keeping it uh, simplified for this discussion, because that that would be another podcast. It's a whole other episode, yeah. So then then gender is, do you see yourself as a boy or a girl? And then there's a lot of permutations about gender role. And, you know, and these are three different variables that don't have to line up. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people uh, have a male anatomy, but they they wish they had a body that reflected a different sense they have of themselves. Or they have a female anatomy, and they wish they had a body that reflected a different sense of themselves. So, so it, it, there is a certain, we believe, a certain biological component of this that happens before they're born, when they're in utero and, and has to do with how the brain is developing. So then what to do with that when they're born? I mean, there are lots of ways, but um, one of the first steps that people are now finding is, first of all, parents ought to blame themselves and feel like they've done a bad job. But I think one of the first steps is to, is to help get their child help with a professional who understands this. And I think it's important to be educated on this and get help. Because part of the work is for the child to understand that who they see themselves as and what their body shows is not in alignment. And that's the first work. I think that's so important, Sam, because I've worked with some young people really in the middle of the struggle, and they start to hate the body they have instead of realizing that it's just what you said, that they do not see themselves as that body, so they might self-mutilate or do other things to harm themselves, when really they need to, in some ways, embrace the situation they're facing. Yeah, and part of it is kind of mourn the loss of not having what they what they what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of grief work there. Exactly, and for the parents too, because they've adjusted maybe to a child that you know, and the gender of the child, where it's really quite different from the child's perspective. So you know that that brings us to like, so what do what do you do? You know, I, I think the first step is, is for a realization and a mourning about what's there. And then the next step is, is, you know, is, is, is variable. But, you know, there, there is a group like out of the Netherlands run by Peggy Katenis Cohen that really tries to identify these children early. First of all, to give them help. And then also that before they go into puberty to, to do sexual reassignment surgery then. If you can find these true children and, and help them as they go through puberty to develop a body that they can align with. It, there, there used to be a strong component that said, you know, uh, sort of along the line of kind of, um, of therapy is force the boy to be a boy. You know, that, you know, if you had a boy who, I don't know, who wanted, uh, to do something that didn't fit with the role. Like wearing dresses was very common. Or yeah, so play with a certain kind of doll. Right. You would do therapy where you would force them to enjoy playing with, believe it or not, guns, oh, toy wow. guns, and you know, and and dissuade them from uh, doing things like wearing dresses. And of course, that causes a lot of, uh, you know, you know, on the surface, the kid could maybe get it that people are going to have negative reactive to this, and then all the thoughts and behaviors go underground. 
which they is suppress them. Yeah. And what you're really talking about, Sam, for decades, there were therapies that really looked at sexual orientation, tried to convert that, sexual choice, and then gender role also tried to convert that. And in our field of child psychiatry, we remember reading these articles really about this. It was quite prevalent in certain groups. And it's really been a major shift to recognize that this really wasn't helpful for the children. It wasn't. And of course, the parents were blamed. So, you know, once again, the parents are blamed for something that is really not their fault and, and has, a, has a biological kind of, kind of a basis to it. And I think part of it was the fear that boys who maybe wanted to wear dresses um, or play with, you know, Barbie dolls were going to be gay. Yeah. I yeah. definitely think that's a big part. Of that was a huge fear from. and also a prejudice, really. That that was a bad thing. And, you know, when male gender is all powerful, you know, and that's seen in an all powerful way, then anything less is less, you know, and that's unfortunate for everyone. Yeah, sissy boys are viewed with much more uh, degradation than a tomboy. Yeah. With the kids today that are in this process, it's a little bit different in America than the Netherlands, which is so much really ahead of us in terms of looking at sexuality. You know, let's say a a child is approaching puberty in America. How could parents really, they've obtained therapy. The child said, really, let's say it's a boy who feels very strongly that I really am a girl. You know, how would you go about working with that family at this point? Would you suggest they get a medical consultation? I would, and a psychiatric consultation to see where these kids are very, very high risk for depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. suicide, yeah. bullying. So, you know, a, a lot of help needs to be given. And, and especially now, um, with the tone in the country, uh, you know, this whole idea of being transgendered is really starting to be frowned upon. I think there was a, there was an opening for a while. You know, there was kind of a, a kind of an understanding of it. You know, orange is the new black. Yeah. Sort of an opening. And I think there's been, once again, a backlash. backlash. You know, in the U.S., I think transgender surgery is done generally way after puberty. And the problem with that, which I think mm-hmm. the Dutch are trying to remedy is once puberty sets in, the secondary sex characteristics set in. And then when you do reassignment surgery, people never really quite look, look right because it's, it's really hard to undo some of the sexual development that has happened. So I think the Netherlands, they're, they're trying to make it, you know, seem more natural in, you know, in the way the body develops, which is why they try and go in early before puberty. But I think in the, in the U.S., you know, it is just, I think it's still a struggle to, uh, for people to understand it and not think that this is a social construct. Well, I think it's seen as a threat and because it's treated like that as you're talking about kind of us versus them, you're either with us or you're against us. I think that makes it very hard because then you can't even have the conversation about it. You just have a lot of kind of angry people on both sides. And that's what I see a lot of is, you know, instead of being able to talk about kind of like we do in these podcasts, these ideas, you know, you're talking about the biological origins, you're talking about the research, a lot of different things. I think people get very locked in because of these fears. And then you're not able to have a conversation. Like what I find is a lot of the time in working with the trans youth, 
is that a lot of the work is with the parents and getting the parents to understand. I have a lot of parents who want to say their child is just depressed or, you know, as if like that's better, I guess, you know, but a lot of kind of not wanting to even acknowledge, even though it starts to become more apparent, I think. In the Bay Area, I think there's a little bit more openness, and so kids feel a little bit more free to explore. And I find that in terms of generation, a lot of the time I'm dealing a lot with helping parents understand that they need to allow their child some space to explore. Well, we're all, the three of us are all therapists who work with kids here, and I think it's really tragic that families will often almost, uh, I won't say prefer, but they'll acknowledge mental illness rather than acknowledge a a sexual difference. Right. And that is something that we're really struggling with. Yeah. You know, I was struck by, uh, I know you've seen this, Jen, National Geographic, which isn't always the most fashion the the forward uh, journal in our country ran an amazing issue on gender just in the last two months and uh, they addressed I think uh, you know before the political wave started Sam I yeah. think they were trying to put in their vote for some of the ideas you're talking about and that issue on gender is very helpful I think to parents to really read something like that and see that these kids are part of America they're everywhere not just at San Francisco and we've got to do our best for them really I think one of the great things about that issue too I I brought it in with some of my clients who were struggling with gender identity issues and they loved kind of looking through the pictures but also that there was one article I can't remember the name of the article but it was asking kind of 9-year-olds all across the country about different different gender questions you know what's good about being a girl what's good about being a boy what's not good and it showed that there were just so many ver- varying answers and also I think it shows somewhat how culture plays into whether or not you're able to even explore some of those answers. I know there were some kids, for example, in China where it's more restrictive and they were saying like, you know, I'll get hit if I say I want to wear a dress and it was a boy. Whereas I think, you know, I think of some of my clients here and if that would were to happen, their parents would maybe question it, but they wouldn't just attack their child in that way. Or try to, like, not attack, but, like, shut it down instantly. I, I agree with you. When when people don't feel they they meet this expectation, which is quite, quite random, um, or arbitrary is probably a better word. Yeah. I think when people feel they don't meet this expectation... They feel there is something wrong with them. Yeah. And there's a lot of self-hatred, which leads to, you know, depression, suicide, self-mutilation, drug abuse, uh, where they try and, you know, um, uh, shift their their self-hatred feelings by using drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. so they can try and fit what they think is expected of them. And they don't understand that, you know, the problem isn't them, it's the expectation. Yeah, I think that's such a crucial point. I mean, I think about one of my clients in particular grew up in a very conservative family and trying so, so hard to be a girl, even though they really felt they were a boy, and just how how hard that was even at 17 to kind of wrestle with those feelings of, okay, I think I should be this way, but I love my family, and my family loves me, but they love me as this person. They don't love me when I'm this other person. 
So something's wrong with me. I have to change. I have to just, you know, learn to be a girl. But then I'm so depressed. I'm suicidal. And I think one of the things that I want parents to recognize is I've seen the changes that happen in a person when they're allowed to be who they are, whatever that may be. And you can almost see somebody who's incredibly depressed suddenly, you know, if they're allowed to express their gender in a different way, they're happy as a clam. I, I agree with that and totally. Because the whole idea is, first of all, is to promote self-understanding. Right. Understanding who you are and having you feel comfortable in your own skin. So you can enjoy your good mind and your good body and not kind of hate yourself. Yeah. And this is really the the bottom row for sexuality, that you've got to have that basement feeling of feeling good about yourself uh, before you can engage in sexual activities and a whole range of different things. One of the things that's come up in, in recent times is the bathroom sharing question particularly around trans and other things. And I wondered, it's an interesting place for the focus and the struggle to take place. And in recent uh, weeks, we're hearing those laws are going to be changing. The bathrooms are closing down. Why do you think, Sam, that it's focused in this area? I'm curious about it myself, but I, I wonder what your ideas are. You know, that's a great question. It's a great question. You know, it's, it's funny. I went to a, a, a film festival recently, which which featured some 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 movies about um, uh, transgender people from around the world, and so the bathrooms were just non-gender, just anybody can use any bathroom. And I have to say, <laughs> as open as I am, it was a little, you know, I, I had to, you know, face my own thing. Wow, you know, walking into a bathroom and everybody's there, you know, was was a little surprising because I'm so used to it being a certain way that it wasn't, that was a little shocking. But um, so I think what it is, there is a certain sort of way when you go to the bathroom, there's a certain kind of uh, uh, facing the fact that we're sexual, we're sexual beings, we have bodies, there's a certain reality to the body, and you have to really confront that. And we're also used to doing things a certain way, and just just the um, you know the the habit and realizing that it's really something we don't think about. It's just habit that to have to think about it kind of puts you in a different space. Well, I've always thought that sex is kind of shoved to the back of the bus sort of thing. And and the bathroom issue is a place, as you say, where we're forced to look at sexual parts, be aware of them, be aware we have them, and it puts it front and center. So it's an interesting area, really, for these arguments and struggles to take place. Yeah, I mean, I think it, because it's also such a separation, as you're talking about, what's funny is talking about history. I learned that the idea behind separate bathrooms came about because it was a joke. It was seen as so absurd that people would need separate bathrooms that I can't remember if it was in France or if it was like a Frenchman, but he had this party and he thought it would be hilarious to have different signs for the bathrooms for the genders. And so it's so interesting that here we are, and it, it's just so ingrained in our culture, in our society, in a lot of places, that these are separate things, these are separate areas, and I think it, that's what we do with sexuality a lot of the time, too, for people, is, you know, this is the girl thing, this is the boy thing, and gender, this is, you know, all of it is tied together, and I think the other thing is the approach about, you know, sexual predators kind of being the reason why you don't want to have these transgender people in bathrooms, 
I think that plays a lot because fear, as you're talking about the aggression, I think, you know, that obviously is a very natural parental fear. And so people kind of capitalize on that as as a means in which to get people to really care deeply about this particular issue. When really having worked with uh, pedophiles uh, and children in bathrooms, the biggest issue is what you said, Sam. It's violence and aggression to worry about, not somebody who's really got a fluid sexual pattern. Right. You know, and it's the violence, the aggression, the the fact that they would take a child in there and do something to them or another child or group of children. That's the bigger issue to be concerned about. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I think, you know, when we do things out of habit as well, we, we somehow feel um, threatened in all sorts of kind of uh, ways that don't make sense aren't really rational, that when habits get changed. And and I think people mislabel kind of the fear of the breaking habit with something bad. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, because I, I agree with you about that. It's really more ag- aggression and hate mm-hmm. and uh, that one has to worry about. And that, you know, it's um, people with, you can't tell who's aggressive or hateful by uh, whether they're a guy uh, a girl or transgender or gay or straight. You can't tell. Anybody can be. Right. So I think to, to uh, try and attribute whether somebody's going to be aggressive, violent by uh, some, some aspect of themselves that's connected to sexuality or gender is really, is really, uh, not rational thinking. If you can't. What would you suggest that um, parents do if they are worried about these things? How could they learn more about it? You know, there's certain organizations. Lyric is a big organization that works with teens and different, uh, often with parents too. But any other ideas where parents could read about it or things that might be helpful to them? What have you referred um, patients to? In general, well, the National Geographic I've already mentioned, but there's some basic books really about sexuality that are coming out now that just like, this is my sex, or I'm a boy, I'm a girl, I'm everything. You know, I think those are helpful, I think, for parents to read that, even at early ages, because we're really talking about parents thinking earlier about their kids' sexual development. Yeah, I think there there are... um one of the ways to do it, I think, is, is movies, like on Netflix, so that you can get somebody else's sort of experience. Uh, I'll tell you, um, there's a lot of movies about um, transgendered people, and what it what it's actually feels like to be transgendered, not really realize it, and then come to the realization. There's a really good Swedish film about it. It's a wonderful film. I agree, Sam. Yeah. Uh, you know, the name is escaping <laughs> yeah. me now. And then there's also uh, movies about what happens when when people who are gay or lesbian or transgender experience kind of violence, even if it's not to them, but they witness violence happening to others who share their view. And, um, you know, there's some really good uh, movies about that. And there's a really good Canadian one called Closet Monster, which is about a gay boy who witnesses, you know, as a boy... Um, sees violence happening to a gay adolescent, mm-hmm. and how it haunts him for his life, yeah. um, at least for the life of the movie, and yeah. how 
And the other, the Laramie Project, is often put on in high schools, and I think that is so helpful to educate everyone about those issues. It's really, I think, important for parents to become educated. You know, kids, I think, are exploring it, but uh, a lot of parents are still pretty rigid in their ideas about it. I think that idea of movies is so fantastic because movies are such a visceral experience. I mean, I think certain people can get things intellectually. You know, they can be like, well, I would be fine with this or I could be fine with this. But then it actually happens and they have these emotions and they're overwhelming and they don't know how to process them. And so they just kind of shut them down. And so I think being able to have an experience and have it not be yours, but when you're in a movie, you know, it sucks you in, you become a part of the story, and you have those emotions, and you're going on an emotional ride. I think it gives you a medium in which to explore without Mm -hmm. it having to be Mm -hmm. all just about you, which I think can be very threatening to some people. I totally agree with that, and I totally agree that there's something about a movie that allows you to get somebody else's perspective, and not, as you said, intellectually, but actually feel in your flesh and bones. Yeah. The other thing that Jenna and I work on here is the idea of having conversations about sexuality. I think that's often hard for parents to do, so really modeling, listening to conversations, trying to have them or begin them with your kids really about this, and a movie's a good jumping off place. You can talk about the movie together, the, that particular Swedish film, which I can't remember the name of either, but it's fantastic. Really watching that with a teenager, discussing the feelings, the reactions, the, the course of that individual, their life. It was really very meaningful and really helped a lot of other people to understand those issues. Right. And it's, and it's not just this, uh, that, that one Swedish film. There are others yeah. out there um, whose names, unfortunately, escape me right now. <laughs> But I, I think that's a good thing. And one of the things that I really want to kind of bring up here that I think we should talk about is I think there's been sort of a reemergence of this idea of, of conversion therapy, especially with the backlash was, um, you know, trying to, you know, that, that this is all a social construct due to bad parenting, you know, all these sort of things that we now know are not true. But still, I think there are people who are promoting ideas or maybe, uh, not in line with the scientific evidence, but promoted a specific agenda that some people want to promote regarding kind of getting people to fit into narrow and rigid kind of kind of roles and uh, beliefs. And the scientific research to this day in all mainstream medical and psychiatric and psychological you know societies um, point out that conversion therapy does not work and is actually harmful to the people it's given to. Right. You see that uh, there are even films about that, Sam, and I'm glad you really underscored that, but there are films about the religious camps that work on both converting gender role, because they have strict gender roles at the camp, and, and then also sexual orientation. Some of those are very funny, but they're also very sad when you meet with the kids who've been in those camps, who've been forced rigidly into that pattern. So I think we all have to be aware that that attitude is still out there. And although the camps are not here in San Francisco, they're there, they exist, and we have to really be aware of the group that's being pushed in that direction. And it really, what happens is, is I think um, uh, it drives behavior underground. Mm-hmm. And then people start doing things like you hear on the news all the time, the mm-hmm. senator who is, uh, you know, very anti-gay and homophobic 
and, you know, uh, is arrested in the bathroom soliciting, you know, an undercover police officer. Right. I think that shows that, you know, that people have these split-off lives that are not integrated. They don't understand who they are. They try and lead, lead something, but there's still a part of them that, you know, uh, engages in underground activities. And uh, they feel bad about it, and, and they engage in risky aspects with that underground behavior. Dangerous risk. Because they really can't express their whole personality the whole time and their whole constructed identity. It's a real problem, I think. Yeah, and it goes back to what you said earlier. They don't understand who they are. They can't accept themselves. And uh, when when that happens, you start to uh, do destructive things, self-destructive things. So we've covered a lot today, and I really appreciate you coming in and sharing so much with us. I think one of the big takeaways, too, that I think you've added that maybe other people haven't is the idea of, you know, we have to learn from history. We have to keep those stories of this pattern of the pendulum and the backlash, because I think you're right in losing that generation. If we're not talking about what was learned, if we don't learn how to kind of hold the line against the anger and that, you know, then the pendulum will just keep going back and forth. Thank you very much for coming, Dr. Judice. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed um, speaking with you. Thank you. <laughs>